0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Doug McLean. Doug is what they call a hockey lifer with over six decades in the game as a player, coach, general manager, team president, and broadcaster. He was the head coach of the Florida Panthers when they first made it all the way to the Stanley Cup finals as a third-year expansion team. He literally started a franchise from scratch as the president and GM of the Columbus Blue Jackets, and he was a very popular broadcaster with Sportsnet. Thus, it came as no surprise that his insights, inside looks, and stories would make for a great book, and that is exactly what he has produced, along with his co-author, the equally great Scott Morrison. Their brand new book, Draft Day, How Hockey Teams Pick Winners or Get Left Behind, is available on pre-sale now and hits the shelves October 3rd. Doug takes fans behind the scenes and reveals draft stories from the past to show how players are discovered and evaluated to build winning teams it's a deep dive into how teams develop that elusive winning chemistry or alternatively how they fail year after year after year which is now frustratingly at 56 years and counting not that i am talking about any franchise in particular but i digress welcome doug to toronto legends thank you for joining me where are you and how
1: are you first of all i'm in prince edward island uh we're up here usually five months of the year and uh at our cottage, and, uh, we head to Florida and, uh, you know, usually around mid-October so, and there till May or so. So we're, we love the time in PEI and we love the time in Florida. Well, you
0: are well known as not only an RV guy, but as a pickleball guy. Did you enjoy
1: both pursuits this summer? Yeah, you know, the RV and not so much this summer, uh, sort of hanging pretty close to PEI once we get here, but the pickleball is, uh, I played it a lot in Florida at our place because, you know, we have courts right there and we've had a group of guys play. When we got home here, actually, my wife, Jill, joined the Summerside PEI Pickleball Club. she's been in there every morning. I've been in a couple of times, so I'm better with uh, playing with the old people in Florida. (laughs) I I do understand that you were champion of Del Boca Vista Phase (laughs) 3. Yeah, as I said on the Nick Caprio show, I was the champion of the of the condo, and then at the end of the show, I said, uh, oh, by the way, the guy I beat was 78, so. <laughs>
0: hey, they only record the wins and losses. That's it. Exactly. Doug, your book draft date hit shelves, as noted in just a few weeks on October 3rd. How excited are you? This is finally a real thing. You can now
1: actually hold the real book in your hands. You know what? It has been a process. Uh, it's funny. I was done to somebody, a buddy of mine that was my radio play-by-play guy in Columbus, George Matthews, who's a PEI guy. And I was saying it might've been one of the more difficult things I've ever done. I mean, I'm not a, really a writer. Uh, you know, I obviously I've written emails and so on and so forth term papers at college years and years ago, but to sit down and actually write a book was a daunting task for me. It really was. And, uh, Funny story, I, I wrote it all on my iPad, whether I was at the pool or the beach or in my, my den in Florida. And, you know, they wanted about 5,500 words or so a chapter. So I, I sent Scott the first six chapters that I had written out. I outlined the chapters, what I'd like wanted the chapters to be called, and then filled in notes, and then I started to write. So I sent Scott the first six chapters, And I didn't know how to do the settings, obviously, on my iPad. So Scott receives it, and he phones me. He said, do you not use paragraphs? It was one straight line of six chapters. So 30-plus thousand words in one straight line. So Scott's thinking, what have I got myself into here, Uh, being the uh, ghostwriter for this book? But anyway, Scott did a great job, and it was a it was a treat to work with them, and we really, we really did have some fun with it as time went on.
0: Well, before we dive into your book, I do want to go, Doug, all
1: the way back and get your story. Where were you born, and please describe your upbringing. Uh, born in uh, Summerside, PEI. Had, had an amazing childhood, living in Summerside. and Started to play hockey at, at six years of age. Grew up with a, a younger brother. And an older, one-year older sister, and my parents had a restaurant in Summerside called the Tart for most of their career, Tartan Restaurant. So, I grew up in Summerside. I left home when I was sixteen or seventeen to go away and play hockey, played Montreal Junior Canadian. So then I came back and uh, finished my uh, did my my degree at UP University of Prince Edward Island. Taught school for seven years in Summerside, coached the local junior team, and. Went back to do a master's at Western in in, uh, educational psychology. I was a special education teacher and uh, never really went back to teaching. I got a hockey job at the University of New Brunswick. And then I sort of the hockey, the full-time hockey sort of started off in 1985. So it's been a lifetime since, it seems like. Well, your first pro head coaching job was with the American Hockey League's Baltimore
0: Skipjacks. But
1: how you got there was a bit bizarre. It was, it was really bizarre. Um, actually, my first job was in St. Louis as an assistant coach. And then I ended up going to Washington as assistant coach with Brian Murray. And then my, my, well, my first head coaching job was Baltimore. what happened, I was working with Brian, and Brian gets fired, and his brother takes his job, which is like maybe the most bizarre thing that's ever happened in the NHL. So Brian and I I'm Brian's assistant, and Terry gets the job. And then Terry was the Baltimore coach, so I take Terry's spot at Baltimore, and that was sort of the start of the head coaching. But I really, uh, it was really bizarre, and it was it was a tough time to be around when the brother takes the older brother's job, and wives, and brothers. I was in the middle of it. It wasn't fun. Trust me, it was not fun. But all was made up years, you know. And within a couple of years, Brian and Terry was all back to the same brotherly love, you know. It was. It does sound a little unique,
0: but the next stop was interesting as well because your first NHL coaching job was with the Florida Panthers, taking a third-year expansion team all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals, which was really unprecedented at the time. Blockbuster founder Wayne Heizinga owned the team, your pal Brian Murray was the GM, and you all took a meeting at the luxurious Bob's Big Boy restaurant in Detroit to discuss the opportunity. Doug, why don't you
1: take it from there? Yeah, it was pretty funny because I've been Brian's assistant, as you mentioned, for a long time and all of a sudden he's looking for a head coach, Roger Nielsen, you know, had departed and he was looking for a head coach and we're sitting at Bob's big boy and I, th- I'm i sort of desperate thinking this is my only t- only chance to get a head coaching job. So I look at Brian in the eye and I said, Brian, you'll be a, you'd be an idiot not to hire me. You really would be an idiot not to hire me. We've been together for 10 years. You know, it's a you know, dream job. Come on. I mean, you got to give me this job. So anyway, he had work to do. He had to talk and into it. He had to talk Bill Tory, the president of the team, into it. Finally, I'll, I was driving down the Western Road at PI, coming from my – taking my kid to hockey school. and Brian calls me and said, hey, I just uh, met with uh, Torrey and Huizenga, and you've got the job. And I was, it was like an amazing feeling after everything I'd been through, to get a NHL head coaching job. Getting a head coaching job is a long way from PEI, let me tell you. And you know what? There was very few. uh, Billy McMillan was one of the few guys that had ever been a a coach in the NHL from PEI. It was uh, a dream come true, and Brian Burry gave me that opportunity. And, I mean, if it's not for a few guys like Jacques Martin who gave me my first assistant job at St. Louis – Brian Murray, you gave me this job. I never would have been in the NHL. You know?
0: Well, as you know, getting this job offer was the highlight of your life. You were making a hundred grand a year, and they offered you a three-year contract: two fifty, two seventy-five, three hundred k a year. You're now thinking, Doug, I'm rich. I just
1: made a million dollars over three years. Oh my God, did I ever think I was rich? But then I had to buy a new house, and then I had to buy a new car, and you know, I mean, uh, you know, it was it was, but it was still it was a start of a a great ride in the NHL. So uh, I look back at it still, uh, when you're in my cottage here, P.I., I've got uh, all kinds of memorabilia from the Panther days, those days, Columbus days. So it's pretty cool to still look at some of those pictures. And it was kind of reminiscent when we got the book going to really get into some of the things in the book and kind of fun little stories, you know. It was also pretty cool at the time, Doug, you're coaching the Florida Panthers. The coaches of the other three
0: major pro teams were Don Shula with the Dolphins before he passed the team on to Jimmy Johnson. Pat Riley was the coach of the Heat, and Jim Leland was the manager of the Marlins.
1: Did they accept you as part of the elite Miami coaching community? They were really good, to be quite honest. It was pretty bizarre. When I got the job at the Panthers, the marketing people were saying, "Um, how are we going to market this? The Heat have Riley, and we've got Doug McLean who nobody had a clue who the hell I was. So, you know, it was pretty fun. And then at the end, it was after the first year, I had, I had Pat Riley phoning me for tickets for a playoff game, so it made me feel pretty good, you know. So it was fun, but, I mean, I'll never forget they had a contest. In my third year, after we went to the Stanley Cup, Wayne tore up my contract, and he moved me up to 450000 a year. And they had a thing in the newspaper one day, and they showed Pat Riley at two and a half million, Jimmy Johnson at two million, Leland, Jim Leland at 1.6, and me at 450. And my son came home from school, and he was in grade five or six, and he was embarrassed because the kids were teasing him about how poorly paid his old man was. I thought, Clark, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm not making it two million. Plus, but we're doing okay, you know, so. He was kind of embarrassed by it, you
0: know. (laughs) Uh, Doug, jumping ahead in your career, your greatest challenge and greatest thrill had to come from starting a franchise from scratch. This being your 11-year journey with the Columbus Blue Jackets, you had to hire 250 people, build an arena, sell the sport of ice hockey in college football, mad Columbus, Ohio. And you started with an empty pad of paper on your desk
1: and only 18 months lead time. Exciting as hell or scary as hell. You know what? It was really exciting when I got the job, and I and first I got the GM's job, and that was that was exciting. Okay, I'm going to be in charge of the hockey. Then I get there, and the building hadn't been started really, and there was I was really the only employee. And I said to the owner, I said, "We need a president. We need a president here to look after the business side of the operation, and you know, ticket sales and all." And he said to me, he looked at I me, mean, he was like 80 at the time, 78, Mr. McCollin, real great guy. He looked at me, he said, ah, you can be the president too. I said, oh my God, he thinks I'm running a Peewee Triple Eight team here. So anyway, we started. And you know, like I said, I, I took the Florida Panthers media guide. I remember sitting home one night with the Florida Panther media guide and going through it and looking through the business. Okay, I need a VP of corporate sales. I need a VP of marketing. I need a human resource, and I just went down the whole thing of the list of people that I that I needed. So the hockey side I felt okay with, but the business side was daunting, and then we had to sell 12,000 season t- tickets and PSLs to get the franchise. So we, it, it was an amazing undertaking, and it was exciting, and it was fun, and Columbus was not a hockey town. There was 700 kids playing minor hockey, in in Columbus, which is a mil, it was a million four people at that time, and uh, today there's seven or eight thousand people playing minor because of the Blue Jackets. So it really, I mean, it it was a it was a challenging time. It was not easy. Built with an expansion team, especially with the rules when we came in, it was tough. But it was a it was something I look back and think uh, how great an experience it really was.
0: And one of the most gratifying parts was when you had opening night, the owner flew your parents, Jim and Fran in for opening night. What do you remember about that experience?
1: Uh, well, yeah, opening night was was unreal because we had been a year and a half preparing for it, you know, had the building built and we worked on building the building. You know, I was I would go to the construction meetings and it was a really it was unbelievable where it started seeing this gravel pit in the road in the center of the city to see a nationwide arena completed and all the, the meetings and, and the journey to get that done for all of us. And then Mr. McConnell you know said, you know, I'd like your parents to fly, you know, I mom and dad were gonna come, but he sent his private jet to Summerside to pick up my you know, my couple nieces and nephews and mom and dad and you know, my sister and brother. So it really It really made it a special, special night. Jill's, my wife's family came as well. We just had a, it was an amazing McLean-Shanks, which is my wife's name from Brockville, celebration, you know, for that opening night face-off. Doug, let's now talk about your broadcasting career in which you took the opportunity
0: to come to Toronto and work for Rogers Sportsnet on both TV and radio. Hockey Central
1: at noon with Nick Kiprios and Darren Millard was a huge show. How'd you get this job? Oh, it's pretty funny. I when I was finished in Columbus, we I was involved for the, for eight months with the you know the process to try to buy Tampa Bay Lightning, and when that fell through, I got a call from Nick. I got two calls. I got a call from Nick and Bob McCowan within a day or so, and they said, "Hey, why don't you consider coming to Toronto and and working here?" And next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Nelson Nelson Nilman and. Uh, David Acondi and all of a sudden uh, I'm in Toronto working at Sportsnet and you know what I had a ball I had a ball doing that job I I never you know I thought it would be a short term because during the process the eight or plus years I was there almost 10 maybe I was in I interviewed for numerous hockey jobs and now you know it, nothing really it wasn't the right fit or whatever at the time and I had a ball with Nick and Darren and uh and all the guys and I I think back to that, well, Scotty Morrison was with us there, and John Shannon, and just an amazing group of people. And it was a blast. It was a great way, really, to finish my career, to be quite honest. And uh, and it was still hockey. I mean, I was still heavily involved in hockey because you had to watch it to talk about it. So, you know, uh, it really was an exciting way. And I, it's a bizarre. When I go to toronto where i go out in pei or i'm out in florida i get recognized more from hockey central at noon than i do from anything it's crazy how many people bring that show up still to this day you know and uh that's it you know nick and darren were so great to work with we did have a ball and we it, it was like a you know what it, i felt terrible because it wasn't really a job and they paid me pretty well. And, I'd fly up to Florida every Wednesday morning. I'd do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I'd fly back to Florida. On Saturday and I'm thinking, I'm getting paid for this? Are you kidding me? But anyway, it was a ball.
0: Well, here's what I'm curious about. You have been involved in hockey for over six decades, 24 of those years in the NHL. You've had relationships with literally thousands of people. When you moved to broadcasting, did you end up losing friends, or did they understand that you had a job to do and that you were just telling it like it was?
1: You know what, I, I was really sort of blown away by that because we told it the way it was. But I think the greatest compliment I would got from my broadcasting was GMs and coaches and players loved that show. And I used to hear from them all the time. I'd be on the air doing a show, I'm doing Hockey Central at noon, and Scotty Baldwin would text me and say, hey, Doug, you missed this, uh, add this to it, or, you know, Kenny Holland would send me a note or Doug Armstrong. I mean, it was bizarre. Like, they watched this show. And, you know, I remember hearing about Sid Crosby and the and the Penguins. They used to sit in the room after practice and watch the show and listen to the show. So it was a show that fans loved, number one. Players loved it. And the coaches loved it. Patty Kane has told Nick and I numerous times that he absolutely loved that show. It was his favorite hockey show. So that was sort of the... The greatest compliment you can get when fans like it. But, you know, you didn't. All, you weren't always the popular. Somebody was telling me the other night that there was a famous uh, interview I did with Bob McCown. We get into a vicious, vicious battle on the radio for 45 minutes. My mother died hating Bob McCown. And Bob and I sort of became friends back again. But somebody was saying they read us that, that it went viral. And they said they were just looking at something the other night. and They said it uh, doesn't matter. I hated both those guys, McCown and McClain, So, so.
0: <laughs> Notwithstanding all that, even you have said that Doug McClain, the coach, would hate Doug McLean, the broadcast analyst.
1: Yeah, maybe I was too honest. You know, and it's funny, that actually came from an enemy of mine, an enemy of mine that was the writer in Columbus, who we did part ways on very good terms. And he, he actually mentioned that to somebody that Doug McClain, the coach and GM would not like Doug McLean, the TV guy. So I can't take credit for it. It was a guy that I don't really like a lot, Columbus, that ripped me a new ass on a regular basis. So I, I, still, I still don't spend a lot of time with him.
0: Well, I guess in hindsight, it would have been better to have done your broadcasting career before your 24-year coaching yeah. and management career. As yeah. you feel it, dealing with the media was perhaps your biggest challenge.
1: You know what? It really was. It, You know what? It wasn't early in my, like, I really enjoyed dealing with the media all the way through the jobs. And it really just became the last couple of years in Columbus. And we just, we just couldn't get over the top. You know, it was really tough. And we were getting, it was, it was vicious. It was vicious commentary from me. Like people say Columbus, not a big media market, but Columbus is a strong media market because of the Buckeyes. The Buckeyes get so much attention there. It was shocking. Like my, my kid came home from school, his first day in school in in Columbus, he was grade five, I think, and he came come home from school and he said, dad, hockey's not going to work here. They hate hockey. They love football. They hate hockey. So I said, Clark, we got to make sure they start to like hockey. But it became tough at the end and we were, it, in fairness, we didn't get over the hump on the ice and it was it, it wasn't a pleasant it wasn't a pleasant time to say the least. So hey, that's that's part of the package, you know.
0: Let's get on to something pleasant. Your new book, draft day, hitting shelves October third, but available now for pre order. Doug, you literally have a lifetime full of stories. You could have easily written a book about you, but you instead decided to focus on a deep dive into the hockey draft. What was the impetus for writing a book on this particular subject rather than a book about yourself?
1: You know what I, I add people talk to me about doing one, uh, you know, about myself and I really didn't have any interest. So I never really thought about it. You know, I, I, talked to a couple people and I said, no, I didn't want to do that. And, and then I get a call from, uh, this literary agent and, you know, he, he said, uh, Hey, Doug, uh, Brian Wood. And he said, he'd never considered writing a book. And I said, well, not really. And he's, well, it's not about yourself it's about your experiences around the draft you know they wanted to be like a a money ball style book of hockey and as well that's going to be challenging but it really sort of intrigued me because it really was my experiences and other people's experience with the draft so that's what changed my mind that it wasn't about me and they, you know, we were able to tie in really my life stories of the draft and my hockey experience. Is Yeah. I've got a ton of stories, hockey stories, but you know, you had to shave it down to just drafts type stories, you know? But anyway, it was, a, it was, it turned out to be fun. And Scott, uh, Scott Morrison was a big part of that. Tim Wormsby another great Toronto sports writer helped as well. and was really important with this. And, uh, uh, I, I really couldn't have done it without them, to say the least. You know, I think what's great about it is you do
0: take people behind the curtain. You write that for even the most diehard hockey fan, the preparation for draft day is what you call a black box, a process unknown and unseen by the public. Draft week is the highlight of this process for any general manager, as it's a week leading up to two days of great anticipation and excitement and pressure, a week during which you can make things happen for your
1: franchise or not. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I really went into depth in the book on it's, it's bizarre. Since 1990, almost every Stanley Cup winner had at least 10, 10 of their own draft picks on the team. And since 1995, every multiple Stanley Cup winner, which was Pittsburgh multiple times, Jersey multiple times, L.A. multiple times, Chicago multiple times, Tampa multiple times, they all had ten of their own draft picks, and that came from a great friend of mine, Bob Strummel, who worked for me with me in Detroit, and and also in, in Columbus. And he sort of, you know, went through in his research and found this. And I took it and ran with it because when you really look at the great Red Wing teams, the great LA King teams, the great Pittsburgh teams, the great Jersey teams, those teams all had ten of their own draft picks on the team. St. Louis. The only year they won the Stanley Cup, 10 draft picks of their own. So point being that you really have got to have your own draft picks make your team to eventually become a Stanley Cup winner. And it's it's been proven time to time again. This year, of all the bad luck I could have, this year was the only time in the last 35 years that the Stanley Cup champion didn't have 10 draft picks (laughs) in Vegas. Because they did it a little differently because of free agency and now free agency. So, so that was a really interesting look at how these Stanley Cup teams were built and how many draft picks of their own were really as the team. So that was kind of a fun, fun look at that most people never, ever thought about. And I thought it really, really hit home in the book, you know? Well, it certainly does. Drafting is so, so, so important. But on the other side, drafting 18-year-olds is really a crapshoot. Oh, my God, it, it, the mistakes that are made, and, and you can, throughout the book, uh, you know, you pointed out the great picks and the bad picks, and I, I made fun of myself uh, on a couple of my picks that are legendary. Nick Caprio said to me on the, on the radio one day recently, he said, what would have happened if you would have drafted Kopitar, instead of Brule. Well, I took Brule at six, who when I took Brule at six, people loved this guy. People loved this guy. He was the Sid Crosby, the West. And Copeter was a really, really good player in that draft, but nobody had Copeter rated in the top 10 of that draft. Nobody. LA took him at 11. So it wasn't, I wasn't the only genius that bypassed on Kopitar, but, the Columbus media certainly made it out like I was the only one that passed on. I'll tell you that. But taking Brule, I said to Nick, I think taking Brule over Kopitar probably cost me about $30 million personally. Because I'd probably still be a GF today if I would have done that. <laughs> so, you know, that's, uh, and we know what GMs make nowadays. So it, it was an expensive mistake to say the least. And I regretted it. But, and you know what? My scouts love Kopitar. Don Boyd loved Kopitar. And I made the call. And I, so in the book, there's a couple of chapters that I really, I basically said, I, hey, I made, make, I made mistakes. But like you just said, when they're 18, it, it's a, it is really, it is really challenging. No doubt about that. Hindsight is always
0: 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, you're right about what you call the GM conundrum. You have to win games to survive, but some seasons losing is not a bad thing, and it's actually the best thing. The key is finding a way to lose and survive and not be accused of tanking. Tanking
1: does occur in the NHL, should it have a role in the NHL. I did a lot on the tanking thing in the book. And, you know, Brian Burke said to me when I got the job at Columbus, I laugh about it. It's in the book. I said, Hey, Burkey, uh, you know, I just got the job in Columbus. He said, Doug, it, it's it's simple. It's a simple job. You are Make sure you're lousy for the first five years. Get the top pick every year, and you'll you'll have a great time. I wasn't smart enough to do that. I was and my owner was not on board with that. He wanted to win. So the first year we played Columbus, we go to the draft the next year and we're picking eighth in the draft. Like seriously, what was I thinking about in our second draft ever? First draft, you hadn't played. Second draft, we were picking eight. Like, like seriously, how dumb was I to do that? And and my owner was so excited because we finished out of Minnesota the first year. He it was like we won the Stanley Cup after the season. And I'm thinking, oh, man, we're, we're instead of picking one or two, we're picking eight. So he did not want to tank. He wanted nothing to do with that. He want he didn't want to be embarrassed to his friends in Columbus, and you know what? It, it cost us. I, it it cost us. And uh, but you know what? That's that's the way it works. I mean, Minnesota took a bit of the same slant They had a little more success, but it eventually caught up to Minnesota, and uh, it catches up to everybody. Everybody it catches up to, whether you like it or not. As somebody told me, when you get fired from the NHL, there's not a person. Who's ever left the NHL that's happy? Even if you're Scotty Ballman, the winningest coach in NHL history, he wasn't happy leaving the NHL. He'd still like to get a job, and he's 89. It just happened, you know? That's
0: why we call you guys lifers. <laughs> exactly. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Doug McLean, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Rick Vive, Scott Morrison, Anders Hedberg, John Shannon, Sean Burke, Ken Reed, and Kenny Albert. How they did it, directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. It is now time for Doug McLean Internet. True or false? The internet, as you know, is a wild west, so I hope you're ready for this. Here we go. You are affectionately known as
1: Prince Eddie. Internet, true or false? That's true. I get that. I, I got somebody named me that on the on the internet. I don't know where it ever came from, but yeah, it's funny. I've heard it a lot in the last five or six years. Yeah, kind of bizarre. And, and what it was, it always, you know, they. I think they just got sick of me talking about PEI so much, you know. So I was promoting PEI because I love it here and love being from PEI. So that's really where it came from. You know. And what's wrong with that? Yeah, there's nothing
0: wrong with it. Number two, in one of the greatest consulting gigs of all time, you were paid one hundred grand by BlackBerry King Jim Balsilli to write a report on the feasibility of bringing
1: the Phoenix Coyotes to Hamilton. Internet, true or false? Absolutely true. He, and what he what he really did is Jim phoned me. I wasn't work; I was doing working, with sports at the time. And he asked me if I would do a relocation plan for him to move the team from Phoenix. That's if He won the lawsuit, and it really was a, a short gig. I remember, like yesterday, going out to the BlackBerry, uh, going into his office, and I said to him, you know, he's trying to get in the NHL. I said, look, the NHL's tough. It is really tough business, and it's not easy to get in to the group. And and he looked at me and said, don't tell me what's tough. I've got Nokia. I've got Apple. I've got all these, listed all these phone companies. And he was number one at the time. He said, "I'm biting at my heels. That's what's tough." And I thought, oh, I guess he's got a point." Uh, now that I've watched what's at, he did have a pretty valid point. Did you see the movie Blackberry? I haven't. I, I guess I should watch it. But anyway, I, Jim and I we talked a little bit after that, but not much because he wasn't. It was within two weeks after that he lost the the battle to get the team, and then he just disappeared. He didn't. He didn't really want anything to do with the NHL, and Bettman didn't want him so. I, I haven't really watched the show. You should watch it just because uh, there's very
0: interesting scenes that take place with the interaction with Gary Bettman in the NHL offices and frankly, I find it very curious that Jim Bell so proudly kind of promotes the movie and participates in promotion when he comes off in the movie as frankly, not such a great guy. Yeah, I know. Like yeah. I have to ask, are you legally allowed to share your conclusions from that report?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's no, nothing tied to that. I, it, we were moving it into an old building in Hamilton that had to be redone. And, uh, you know, I sort of I sort of made it look that, like it could be a very positive move to Hamilton. I really did. And I thought it could be. I thought it would be an amazing market. I still believe it would be an amazing market. Um, and it was really the only option he had at the time, you know. It really was the only option he had. So, uh, you know, we were going to make it work. And it was kind of a fun project to do. Actually, this is number
0: three, and you've already ruined it for me, frankly. You had an ongoing public feud with broadcaster Bob McCowan, mercilessly calling him Bob McGowan, and even drawing your late mom Fran into the fray to defend your honor. You have today, and you already alluded to this, patched things up and are friendly with the currently recovering Bobcat. But was this feud internet true or false, and how was your mom involved?
1: <laughs> it was vicious, it, and it was all because of Jim Ball silly. I mean because I didn't tell Bob that I was working for Jim. Like I think mean, I said, "Why would I tell you? I didn't tell anybody. Why would I tell you?" And he was so upset about that cuz he liked to tell everybody how he was in with Jim Ball silly and you know. I love Bob Cat- and you know what? He was great to me and it was vicious. It was for 40- I was stand I was out to dinner with my family. And he, I went out to go on this interview, with I thought would be 10 minutes, like, well, and I'm standing on the side of a road in PEI, on the side of a highway in PEI, fighting with Bob McCown for 45 minutes. And it was vicious. And my mother happened to listen to it, and she hated him so much till the day she passed at 92. She used to say to me every time I'd see her the last five years she was elected, what's that guy in Toronto doing? What's that radio guy in Toronto do? But you know what? I phoned Bob the next morning. And he's never told anybody this. I phoned him the next morning at 8 o'clock. I said, what the hell was that all about? Where, where did the... Well, you didn't tell me. I said, that's it. Oh, we had it out again the next morning. And then after that, it was over. And he faked that he burned me from his show. and It was all a... It was a sell job. And we sort of laugh about it now. And we've actually... I've been on with him a hundred times since. And it's... You know, I feel terrible for how he's doing. Actually, I'm doing his podcast the end of this month. So hopefully, hopefully Bob will be back by the time I'm on. But we've, we've rekindling and we, we you know, I was, it was showmanship of the best by Bob McGowan. Well, we're glad to hear you patch
0: <laughs> things up. And, and I uh, second, we hope Bob's feeling better.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Number four, Doug. Jack Rebney was known as Winnebago Man because of his support for RVing, and he actually started a Netflix doc called Winnebago Man. With Jack Rebney's recent passing at the age of 93, Doug McLean is being pitched as the new Winnebago Man.
1: Internet true or false? <laughs> no, I'd say it's false. We, I like you know how it happened. It was bizarre right? how I get into RVing. Is COVID hit? We're in Florida, sitting at our condo. We have a place in PEI. I was born and raised in PEI and they wouldn't let me into PEI because I was not a full time resident. Because I was a I was I'm a US resident, I'm a Canadian citizen, and we could not non residents could not get into PEI during COVID. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And I phoned the premier who was a buddy of mine, he said, Doc, it's it's really bad. We can you know. So anyway, I, Jill and I are sitting on the patio. What the hell are we going to do for the next couple of so I said, okay, we'll buy a, a RV. So we bought an RV and we, we toured till they let us into PEI. So I think we put 37,000 miles on it three years. So we've had a great time. It's been really, it's been kind of, uh, it's been kind of fun, you know? So it's a different lifestyle. We've been kind of enjoyed it. So mainly it's just back and forth. You know, we We've been all out through Utah and California and Colorado and sort of everywhere, so we've had a great time, you know. I got one
0: last one for you here. Maria Sharapova, John McEnroe, Steffi Graf, and Andre Agassi have all made the move to pickleball. Now that there is finally legit competition, Doug McLean is making his move to join the Seniors Pro Pickleball Tour. Internet, true or false?
1: Uh, Absolutely false, but I did. My wife, Jill, just... Just got me a couple of knee braces, so hoping that's going to help play a little more. (laughs)
0: Excellent. (laughs) I got some loose ends to close off with. I don't want to put you on the spot. You can take a pass on this one if you wish. The other McLean, Ron McLean, will he be able to patch things up with Don Cherry? The whole country of Canada
1: wants them to be buddies again. I know Don pretty well. I know Ron, and I know Don pretty well, and I've known Don for a lot longer than I've known Ron. It will never be the same. It will not. In my opinion, it won't be. Ron may think it might be. Ron may dream that it might be, but I don't think it will be. It would be great if they could get it back together. But as you For know, sure. sometimes it's it's hard to go back.
0: What a team they were. Oh, Absolutely.
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah. Loved it. I just had on this podcast legendary broadcaster Kenny Albert, who shared stories of his two seasons as the voice of the AHL Baltimore Skipjacks in which to save money, he would share a hotel room on the road. With, at that time, assistant coach Barry Trotz, who now is not only the GM for the Nashville Predators, but is the third winningest coach in NHL history. Were
1: Kenny Albert or Barry Trotz with you during your time with the Baltimore Skipjacks? i uh, just tell my son this because I just saw Kenny Albert just put a new, took out, or he has a new book coming out. A Mike for all seasons. Trotsy was Trotsy was a, was a uh, scout with us. And when I left Washington, Trotsy uh, rented my house and became assistant coach in Baltimore. But the key story, and I bet you Kenny Albert never told you this. I hired Kenny Albert For his first job as a broadcaster with the Baltimore Skipjack, did he tell you that? He did not, and that's breaking news. (laughs) That is breaking news. I was the guy that gave Kenny Albert his start. Now his father probably had something to do with it, but I hired him as the first play-by-play broadcaster of the Baltimore Skipjack. Well, I will say that Kenny looks back on that time with great
0: reverence. He really. Yeah, way he's talking about that start. So okay, like, that's fun. great. Yeah. As they say, Doug, everything that goes around comes around. In 1987, when your son Clark was born, you had a guy playing for you on the very first team you coached, the St. Louis Blues. And today, your son deals with that former player, now based out of Chicago, this being none other than past podcast guest, the Tank himself, Mr.
1: Gino Cavallini. How surreal is that? It's unbelievable. You know, and, uh, it, it, Gino... Gino was just a great guy when I, in 1987 with the blues, 1987, 88, I was with Gino and I love the guy. He was just a battler and just a quality person. And Clark met him when he first moved to Chicago 10 years ago. Gino who heads up the Chicago mission minor program, uh, has been just terrific with Clark. And it, it's, I, I really appreciate it. And Gino, uh, and Clark really appreciates it. So, It is pretty bizarre, but 87 was the year we met at St. Louis. Fantastic. Doug, you've calculated that since you began your
0: coaching career, moving from job to job, city to city, that you and your wife of 46 years, Jill, have lived in 29 different houses. Do you remember any of them fondly? And did you ever come back from a road trip and drive home to the wrong address?
1: (laughs) No, but I'll tell you what. How it happened was the first year we would rent a house... The second year, we would buy a house, and the third year, I'd get fired. And then we'd rent, buy, and get fired. and we'd rent, buy, and get fired. So, you know, that you can get up to 20 pretty quick, you know. So eventually, Jill said, we're buying from now on. The first year, we moved to city. So we have lived in a lot of houses, and through 46 years of marriage, it's been, it's been really, uh, it's been pretty tough on, on Jill. And as she says to me on many, many occasions, She'll bring up a story about the time in Columbus, and I'll say, geez, I don't remember that. She said, well, you really weren't with us for 11 years. You really weren't with us for 11 years. How bad is that here? You know, now I used to go to all my son's practice, a lot of his practice, a lot of his games and my daughter's riding and all that. But she said, you know, you weren't really all there those 11 years. So that's what happened, you know, but they still love you. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. It's okay. Again, Doug's new book with
0: Scott Morrison is Draft Day, How Hockey Teams Pick Winners or Get Left Behind, available for pre-order right now, or you can grab from your favorite retailer's shelves as of October 3rd. Doug, what do you have planned for the launch? Any interesting book events coming up?
1: Well, I'm going up to Toronto uh, October 2nd to the 5th, and uh, we're having a launch party. I'm not sure if it's going to be Tuesday or Wednesday night of, that, of the three days I'm there. They haven't finalized that yet. And uh, you know, I I've they said invite some friends. Well, I don't have a whole lot of friends in Toronto, and then I started to put down some names on, okay, well, Jack Armstrong who's a great friend who came to PEI, him and his wife and spent a week with us this summer, and Matt Devlin and Brian Burke and John Shannon and Nick Caprios and all all of a sudden I then the Hillary the makeup girl and Deb Berman the the clothing person all of a sudden i'm up to like 45 names or something so i mean scott's got a group so luckily scott and i both have a similar uh group there but scott left some additional ones so i'm really looking forward to that and and the book getting go out there and and i'm gonna sign i gotta signing it indigo one of the days I'm there so i think i i'm kind of i'm very excited about it getting out it's got out a little bit pi that it's coming so i'm getting asked a lot about it and i'm really kind of proud of it i i never envisioned ever doing it and uh i'm telling you something it was three years it took three years and uh the funniest thing about it all though at the end that i finished the book and i get a call from the editor of simon and schuster and he said i'm just going to send you six or eight items that you said in the book and our legal department has suggested maybe you change the word. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, so, hide on. Oh, my God. Good. I'm glad the guy saw that. So uh, we uh, changed the wording so that I wouldn't get sued or they wouldn't get sued or somebody. But anyway, so that's so the lock is in to write you the book. Well, I want to congratulate you on uh, limiting your liability.
0: And I want to congratulate you on this book. As you know, it's been a long journey. It's been great meeting
1: and hearing your stories, and I want to wish you a great book tour, Doug. Thanks a lot, Andrew. I really appreciate you uh, you having me on and uh, look forward to uh, future podcasts of yours. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. To the
0: listeners, on behalf of Doug McLean, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.